Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a remote viewer discusses why the owners of the system are desperately trying to suppress awareness of humanity's innate psychic ability. What would be a bigger conspiracy than the human race being denied the knowledge of what we're truly capable of and keeping us in a state of confusion and separation from our own answers and our ability to know what's happening in the world and with our leaders and everything else? If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Remote viewer Deborah Lynn Katz is standing by to discuss what she calls the greatest conspiracy, the greatest cover-up. That is, humankind's innate intuitive ability and why this is such a threat to the powers that be. She'll also talk about the work of one of the pioneers in remote viewing, Ingo Swan. She'll also talk about how we can tap into our psychic abilities and what we can do to enhance our remote viewing skills. Before that, a couple of reminders. I'll be hosting Coast to Coast AM this coming Sunday, May 31st. Go to coasttocoastam.com for more details. And up here in Canada... Fans of Humble and Fred Radio can hear me next Wednesday, that's June 3rd, around 8 in the morning Eastern for my regular monthly hit. Humble and Fred can be heard in the greater Toronto area on 8.20 a.m. Humble and Fred have been on the radio up here making people laugh for more than 30 years, and they're also very open to a lot of the things I talk about on this podcast on Coast on my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show. And they've been great supporters of mine for years, and it's always a good time when I'm on. And sometimes the discussions get quite heated, but we always depart as friends. Check out Humble and Fred up here in Ontario, the greater Toronto area, weekday mornings on Funny 820. And you can also listen to the show later on their podcast, go to humbleandfredradio.com. And uh, if you care to keep track of my events and appearances outside of this podcast, go to strangeplanet.ca and click on my appearances page. All of my upcoming Coast to Coast AM shifts are there, as well as other radio guest appearances. strangeplanet.ca 
And while you're there, scroll down to the bottom and register for my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. Deborah Lynn Katz insists we're all psychic. We all have the ability to remote view, and she can teach you how. She also says the powers that be don't want you to know you have these abilities, and we're about to find out why. Deborah is close to receiving her PhD in psychology with an emphasis in human consciousness and society and holds a master's degree in social work. She's a former U.S. probation officer and legal advocate for victims. She's been conducting remote viewing and parapsychological research for a number of years and worked and studied in the Ingo Swan Remote Viewing Archives. She's also the director of the International School of Clairvoyance, one of the first school of its kind to offer successful distant training programs via teleseminar and webinar. She's the author of the landmark books, You Are Psychic, The Art of Clairvoyant Reading and Healing, Extraordinary Psychic Proven Techniques to Master Your Natural Abilities, and freeing the genie within. She's an accomplished clairvoyant remote viewer, medium and energy healer who works for some of the leading business manufacturers, stockbrokers, and whose clientele includes some of the top celebrities in the nation. Several of her students from the past two decades have gone on to start successful, professional, intuitive related businesses. Deborah Lynn Katz, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I am great, how are you doing? Terrific, thank you. You talk about the intuitive abilities that people have, the potential of humankind as the greatest conspiracy, the greatest cover-up perhaps of all time. Explain. Yes, and I have to say, I've talked to so many people who suggested that I talk to you on your show, and for a while I was thinking, well, you know, really I'm not that into conspiracy theories, and then I started to just jot down some notes, and that was when it hit me that this really is, in in my view, the biggest conspiracy. So what would be a bigger conspiracy than the human race being denied the knowledge of what we're truly capable of and keeping us in a state of confusion and separation from our own answers and our ability to know what's happening in the world and with our leaders and, and everything else. Ingo Swan, he talked about the fear of telepathy. Explain what he meant by that. Yes, exactly. He talked about that a lot, and especially in his book, Penetration. And so that would be just the idea that our leaders or people that have are up to things that don't want the rest of society to know about then they obviously would want to block anyone or any means by which people could get information about that. And so, and then of course, people, you know, people value their privacy above all else. But why is that? Why why do people not want others to know what they're thinking or what they're doing? And then how would society look if that really either wasn't an issue or it, let's say we just all knew what each other was thinking about at all times. Uh, at first you might think, oh, that would be terrible. But then you, if, if you follow it through to the logical conclusion, people would have to behave differently if they knew that anyone could know what they were up to. And that's how I think society would transform and maybe will start to transform. 
And so the, yeah, this, be held accountable. Right, right. Although, I mean, we all have our secrets, right? Some of them are relatively benign, but we would be terribly embarrassed if someone knew exactly what we were thinking at any given time. So I can understand that, certainly. I mean, we, we should be entitled to the privacy of our own thoughts, don't you think? Well, I guess I have a, a slightly different perspective just because I I know the truth is is that we really don't. Uh, on the one hand, I mean, um, no one has the time. Like, I might have the ability to tune into you and get snippets of your thoughts about certain things. And I, I would say that I and lots of people do and can learn how to do that quite easily. But the bigger thing is, do we want to, right? Like, out of oh, we're busy people, so how much time do do I have to go looking into everybody's thoughts? I don't. Um, you know, if someone wants me to look at their thoughts, they'll, you know, let me know. Or, for example, I have someone who came to me where he has five cats, and one cat was uh, turned up dead with his head cut off, and then other neighbors are having cats turn up dead. So there is a cat killer in a neighborhood, and he wanted to know if I could help either myself or bring people together to, to find out who is doing that. And so in that case, we want to tune in and we want to look at where does that person live, um, how what's the um, path they travel to get from his house to the guy's house where the cat was found dead, uh, What what is that person thinking, what's their motives, basically psychological profiling. And, you know, people don't have a hard time when you hear about the FBI hires psychological profilers. Um, the the government, um, police agencies, detective agencies. It seems to be okay to access knowledge through other means, but when it comes to your psychic abilities, either one that's not possible, so people just laugh at it, or two, there's something wrong with that, but it, not wrong with acquiring information from other means. So you're a former U.S. probation officer. Uh, did this, did your ability, uh, your clairvoyance and so forth, did that come in handy? Were you able to apply those skills to that line of work? Yes. Well, I would say it was right around the time when I had first started working as a probation officer that I started doing a lot of meditation work and also started to take intuitive development classes. So I really, as I was training and how to be a probation officer and, and do investigations. I was also every evening going to classes and meditating about two hours a day to enhance my abilities. So I would, uh, and I was primarily doing investigations for um, sentencing recommendations. So I would sit with defendants and as they told me, I had to ask them about their finances and and past behavior, and I would start to get images that would show me that what they were saying was not always true. And then I could ask them about what I was seeing in my images. And at that point, the their attorney might basically fall off his chair, or you know, they look at me stunned, and then they would be surprised and they would admit, yes, well, yes, I do have, even though I just said I have no money, yes, I do have three grand pianos in my living room. How did you know that? You know, so that that was just probably my first example where I would say I used it 
during an interview. Uh, The problem was I would get a lot of information and put it into my reports, and then my supervisors would say, well, you know, we already know they're lying, so, you know, this information, like, we can go verify this, but we already have enough on them, so then, you know, it wouldn't really be followed through on. This really is an ability to acquire information, and there's so many different ways we can acquire it. This is just one other way. And then that, in when you take all the different forms of information together and process it, that's where I think it can be most useful. The difference between clairvoyance and remote viewing is what exactly? Well, you can look at the, it, it's, you can look at remote viewing as a term that's synonymous with clairvoyance. Uh, the ability to access information through visual form, through pictures and images and things like that. Or you can look at the term remote viewing as it was defined within its historical context, uh, which was really it was born in a lab starting with Ingo Swan with the American Society for Psychical Research. And then he moved on to the Stanford Research Institute at the time that was being developed. And then and then the techniques that they were working with and subject matters then were used in the U.S. military. So a lot of times when you hear people say, I'm a remote viewer, or I'm trained in remote viewer or, or do it, a lot of times they are speaking about that specific context where you might have other people sometimes just saying, yeah, I, I remote viewed um, you know, where the keys were over, um, someone couldn't find their keys, and I just tuned in and got information. So I I would say that would be, you know, a a lot of times people use the terms in different ways. And then with clairvoyance even, sometimes people are using that as a catch-all phrase for psychic abilities. But I think it's really helpful to be very specific about these terms. So we have these different psychic abilities, like we might get information in the form of hearing or an instant thought, an instant download. So I wouldn't call that clairvoyance. I would call hearing clairaudience or feeling uh clear sentience. All right. You mentioned Ingo Swan, and I was very surprised, I suppose, to learn that his remote viewing archives are at the University of West Georgia. Do I have that right? Yes. And it's funny. I was very surprised, too, because when he passed away at that point, I had already been uh, doing training and training um, with some of his former students, reading lots of books. And so when he died, I heard that his archives had been donated somewhere. And I thought, well, someday it would be nice to look into that. Well, I ended up getting a scholarship to graduate school at University of West Georgia. And I was pretty much on my way there um, on flying there, moving to Georgia when I uh, got a, a text and found out that that was exactly where his archives were, where I was gonna be going to school. And so I ended up volunteering and spending just about one, one day a week there for three day, three years straight. So that was quite an eye-opening experience, getting to read about the history from his perspective. And it's, it's a very different perspective than you get from the histories of, I'm sure you've talked to plenty of people that were involved in those programs over the years, but you probably talked to the researchers or other remote viewers. And from his perspective, 
And, and also, I say it's his perspective, but his archives are filled with thousands and thousands of memos and letters from other people who would acknowledge what his role was. And a lot of people would just kind of, they, they looked at him as an extremely talented psychic. So you always hear about that, the extraordinary things he did with um, both his, his psychic abilities, his psychokinesis abilities, ability to influence matter, but you don't hear about how he really was a scientist and about the discoveries he made that made a difference for all the researchers. But then when they did their write-ups, they didn't, they didn't say he was a scientist. He didn't get his name on the studies. Um, he wasn't referred to as that most of the time. It was more he was the talented participant. And it's interesting that an institution of higher learning, uh, the University of West Georgia, would have these archives of a remote viewer because my impression of the world of academia is that it is populated largely by materialists and people that would not consider this serious research. So I'm wondering, how did they display or how do they house and display his archives? Are they reticent to admit they have them? Are they proud of it? Yes, that's an excellent question. Well, really, it is so dependent on the person who is in charge of the archives. And so Blynn Olivier, who is head of special collections, she very much is a believer in these topics. She, she's not really been personally involved until she started to acquire his works. And now she's um, got in the archives. Um, Stanley Krippner is going to be donated his archives. Um, uh, let's see who else. Stephen Schwartz's archives will be in there. They already had uh, Bill Roll, who Bill Roll was a longtime professor within the psychology department there. So the the psychology department uh, is has its roots in humanistic psychology and transpersonal. So there are different departments around the country. There's not a lot, but they focus on transpersonal uh, psychology, which is more about meditation and Eastern philosophy. And so as parts of those programs, parapsychology is a small subset. So they are, they were already open with, if they hadn't been, the university wouldn't have even thought of having this collection. But then Blynn as head of special collections, she's been very aware. And, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this publicly, but that her, her days or even the days of being able to acquire the information could be limited, especially since Georgia is such a Republican based, um, uh, you know, so, so many different Christian groups, which tend to be opposed to these things in addition to the academics you mentioned. So what she's been trying to do while she's there is acquire as many collections in this um, uh, tradition as possible because She's aware that at any point they could get a new president at the university and stop acquiring the material. But uh, there, I believe there are some laws in place that once the material is at a university library, they really can't get rid of it. Or, you know, they could put they could put it somewhere in a back room somewhere. But even certain archives have um, requirements like where they had to sign contracts with the people that they had to be displayed in a certain way. So for example, I 
uh, got won a research grant to go study at the University of Illinois this past summer. I spent 10 days there. And there they have a collection called the Merton J. Mandeville um, Collection of Parapsychology and Occult Sciences. And a the head of economics there had donated a collection. And it's completely filled. It's got Ingo Swan's work. It's got uh, it's got all the the parapsychology journals from the last 150 years, huge collection of work. And in his mandate, it said that the books had to be displayed in a way that undergraduates could see them. It couldn't just be put uh, away where no one, half of the books are in uh, underground and they're hard to access, but at least some of them are there where, where more people are likely to see them and they can't get rid of it per the contract. And how about for you personally? You're a, a PhD candidate in, in psychology. I'm wondering about your peers and your colleagues. I'm guessing, you know, many of them might, again, might be materialists. Do you ever feel like you've sort of gotten in behind enemy lines? Yes. Uh, yes. Now, again, where I am, people are more open, although there's a, a wide range. But what has been so shocking is that some of the enemies are within. So it's not just that it's about people who believe in these things or open to them and people who are not. It's even within the field, even within the smaller field of remote viewing, which is just one field, or uh, there's a a term uh, thought collective, like there's all these different thought collectives. So remote viewing would be one, parapsychology would be one, um, more like spiritual mediumship would be one. And even within these different thought collectives, there are people who are in conflict with each other who believe doing things a certain way or some, there's materialists within parapsychology and even within the field of remote viewing. And there's even uh, so, and some of them are even opposed to the idea. And this is where we kind of come back to the whole conspiracy. Is this something that you're just naturally gifted at? Or is this something that you can learn? I believe society as a whole is moving more in the direction that there is something here We that, that in the human population, some people are gifted. And that's an acceptable thought. But the idea that this is more in the population and that and that this could be developed is something that even within the field of parapsychology and remote viewing, it's not just that they don't believe it, it's that there is a personal vendetta to hide this information. And because of that, my own dissertation plans to investigate and to do a qualitative study, it wasn't even as threatening as a quantitative study, which is considered more valid in in all of science, but even a qualitative study, my plans were squelched. Um, My dissertation chair was um, who I had, who brought me into the program, who, who I had been friends with and planned to do my project with for two years, overnight received a phone call uh, from, well, I still don't know if it was a phone call or email, but she alluded to it and dropped me and the project and there was, and the rest of my department was just like, well, that's her prerogative. And the word she used was there are influential people within the field of parapsychology who you've been having debates with and, and 
I think that they're too influential and I don't want to be a part of, of this controversy. And because of that, I am now, um, I have a committee, I'm doing a dissertation, but it's not on parapsychology. Hmm. So you were prepared to do this qualitative study. If you were to do a quantitative study, what percentage of the population do you, you believe have strong psychic ability? Well, okay. So again, it's, and I would say this, what I'm about to say here, I've been now, I first started developing my own abilities 25 years ago. And I started teaching probably about 23 years ago. And at any given time, I have probably close to 50 students in any number of my classes. So I see people from the point they come in. And it's a whole range of people where even when they first come in, some are, you know, already like, wow, this is amazing what this person did for the very first, let's say for remote viewing, because that's really easy to, to see the results, you know, from the very first one. It's like, wow, this is an incredible match to this picture um, that, that they don't see until a later time. Then there's others where maybe initially, like they've got some correct information, but there's a lot of incorrect, like they're pretty off. But then a few weeks later, after say like practicing 10 more targets, now they're just spot on. And so, and then every once in a while, there's just a couple people that just, you know, they just don't do well. So I would say I tend to, and but the problem is, is the people that are coming to me, they already might be what's called self-selected. So, so I may not be getting to see the representation of the whole population who may have a lot less ability. It might be the people already coming to me are already ones that had enough experiences in themselves to know there's, you know, something going on. But a lot of people will say, yeah, I had... You know, in my life, I had a couple of dreams that were precognitive or I knew someone was going to call me. So I suspected I might have this, but they have no idea like how to, you know, sit down and intentionally get information. But I get to see that development. A lot of my classes are 12 week classes. So over the course of a few months, I see progress. And then over the and then a few more months, I see more progress. And a lot of it is very dependent on practice. And that's something else I learned about Ingo Swan that blew me away. Like if, if you asked me what was the one thing I learned about him through my archival research is that there is, is documentation that he did over 19,000 19, trials where he was given some kind of psychic task, even if it was just like there's a container, what do you see in the container? Um, but he did 19,000 tasks in a single year. And over the course of, let's say, like the 15 years he was active with the, the military programs and SRI, uh, he supposedly, according to him and other people who, who echoed this back in the documents, he supposedly did over a million trials. Now, a lot of these are documented where initially when he would do a new task, he didn't do well. He, so, you know, people think like, oh, he was so amazing. Yes, he was. But he also a lot of times could not get the information or got the wrong information. But what he was doing was tracking his progress. And every time he he was blocked or he 
got a lot of times what's happening is you're getting a little bit of information, but it's very distorted. So what caused that distortion? That was what he tracked and wrote about and then tried to incorporate into a developing training program that then has been taken up by other people. So for any one person, you know, what might happen is someone does a few, let's say, simple remote viewing targets. And if they do well, they're encouraged to keep going. But if they don't do well, it's just like, oh, I guess I can't do this. Well, well, no, it, you know, there's a difference between trying something 10 times, 100 times versus 10,000 times. But who has the perseverance to keep going like that? So really, this work is not, it's, it's not just about the psychic ability. It's about the supporting personality characteristics that determine how well you're able to do and how much this can really be developed and where it can go. It reminds me of a, a quote from Bruce Lee, of all people, who, uh, who talked about, he said, I fear not the man who practices 10,000 kicks once. I fear the man who practices one kick 10,000 times. Wow. <laughs> I love that. I hadn't heard that one, but exactly. So it sounds almost like it's a like it's a muscle that you've got to use constantly. And I, I keep hearing about the third eye and the pineal gland. Is that where this ability resides? Well, I've done a little bit of it. Well, I'd say I've done a lot of exploration with that. It seems like one approach is to bring yourself to that place in your mind. Like if you you can imagine yourself to be centered in your body or out of your body. And now we can't say for sure, is that really where you're centered? But but you can use your imagination and bring yourself there and touch yourself on your third eye and do your intuitive work from that place. And it seems like, it, as opposed to say, like if you drop down like into your gut where some people say they get information, I, I, I never feel like it's coming from that place. But I've, I've experimented with myself and my students where I had them be centered in different places of their body and then attempt to get information. And they still got information, but it seemed like it wasn't as sharp or as clear. And I also think since the pineal gland and um, whether you call it the pineal gland, third eye, sixth chakra, it's also located near the brain. And so when you start to just kind of do exercises to center your brain and to clear out the analytic noise information there, that all makes a difference. So it's kind of hard to say for for sure, but I one technique is I will encourage my myself and my students to come up to the pineal gland and and we do seem to get slightly better results from there more of my conversation with remote viewer deborah lynn katz when conspiracy unlimited returns Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
That time of the week to welcome back Colleen Forgas, our nutritional therapist and the manager at our Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Hello once again, Colleen. Hi, Richard. I'm feeling electrified today. <laughs> Fantastic. I was going to ask you about that. Every time I take my boys out, to, they, they play tennis, they play hockey, we go skating, skiing. They're always they're always bothering me for a sports drink. They're A, they're expensive, and B, I don't even know what's in those things. Anything on the Full Script Dispensary to replace these sports drinks? Yes, Richard. A product called 40,000 Volts by Trace Minerals Research. It's an electrolyte concentrate that you can add to your own beverage. So you can just put it in water and rather than purchasing something that we don't know what it's, you know, all the chemicals that are in those common sports drinks, this will allow you to make your own. So it's really great in relieving muscle cramps, including nighttime leg cramps that people often get. And for anyone that might have a reverse osmosis water system, it helps to put back some of the minerals that those systems remove from the water. Oh, that's a great idea. So it comes in a powder, 40,000 volts. That's right. Fantastic. Thanks again, Colleen. Thank you, Richard. To get your 40,000 volts, go to strangeplanet.ca. Then click on the full script dispensary button. All orders receive 10% off and orders of $50 or more ship absolutely free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, Here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. Deborah Lynn Katz, the author of You Are Psychic, is here. I I can't remember who it was, but it was a remote viewer, an intuitive, who suggested that our ability to, this innate ability we have, if it resides in the third eye, it may be hampered through something called the calcification of the pineal gland. And that could be toxic toxicity, you know, in our food and the soil. It could be non-ionizing radiation and Wi-Fi. Would you concur that there is a calcification of the pineal gland and it is caused by these sorts of things? You know, I just haven't seen any evidence in one way or the other. I've heard that. I haven't seen any evidence of that. It, it So I can't really speak to that. What I would speak to is, to me, it's more, you called it a muscle before or used that analogy. And I would say it's definitely about exercising that muscle. It's about exercising your visualization muscle as well. So the first thing... I would say for people is to start visualizing and even if they don't think they're well at visualizing there's lots there's lots of exercises you could do just visualize an object and then and then explode it there's something about seeing objects uh, forming and then dissipating and then just continuously doing that will help but what a lot of people don't realize is that you need to have a you need to have something you're trying to get information about. So there's two things that happen in relation to our psychic abilities. We may just have spontaneous experiences, and that's what people are mostly familiar with. So then people are going around trying to create the spontaneous experience. But that's very different 
then having a very specific task, like I want to get impressions about this photograph, or I want to get impressions, even like I'm going to my friend's house that I've never been to. I want to see what's on the dining room table or above the table, or I want to see what I'm going to be going house shopping tomorrow. And I want to get some impressions for what the house is going to look like when I, when I get there inside the house. Like I want to see one item that in the living room that I don't know is there. So these are specific tasks that are very easy to give ourselves. And then we can easily get feedback. And then we have something to direct our abilities to. Otherwise, you know, we're, we're just kind of waiting around for something to, to happen. I mean, that's kind of like, imagine a detective that's just like, they're not investigating a case, they're just sitting at their desk saying, okay, like, I want some information to come in about what that we really have to, um, if we're talking about voluntary, intentional, sigh, we need to know what the task is, and then start to take attempts to get that. And then the other part of this is, like we said before, perseverance. So for example, I've been doing this project of my own where once a week or so I tune into the coronavirus, I want to see whatever I can about the virus itself and what's happening in society and what's happening uh, through news reports. And and sometimes I'll, I'll start to tune in and I'll get information right away. But other times I'm laying there and I'm getting distracted. And I might, um, and I tend to do this before I go to sleep. Uh, so I might lay there for two hours and it might take me about 200 attempts to refocus my attention to start to extract information. Most people that would try this would just be, you know, tuning in a few times and saying, oh, I'm getting distracted. I'm not really getting anything or their logical mind comes in. So, again, it's about that perseverance. And it's it's not about the second you just say, oh, I can't do this. I'm not good at this or I'm, I'm getting distracted. Then you've stopped. You've stopped trying. So you just have to understand that this is the nature of getting the information that it's not going to be there right away sometimes it's sometimes going to be distorted and you have to keep going in and in and be relentless to pull it out and even then you're just going to be getting most of the time little snippets and then you have to separate out the logic information from the snippets of actual uh, data how how does one go about remote viewing a pandemic it is so widespread where do you know how to where to focus your attention well, again, it's, it is so widespread. So a few, and I always encounter that. And so when you're, again, you're seeking information, like, do I want to know how I'm going to be impacted? Do I want to know how people in my state, like, where do I start? So uh, one way is to tune into what is going to be appearing on the news, you know, why, of course, whatever appears on the news is not necessarily really representative these days of what's most important. You know, it can't be because we're getting 24-hour news reports about Trump, while meanwhile, there's a lot of other things going on in the world. But every once in a while, some interesting um, information sneaks in there on the newscast. So what am I going to see as a watcher of news in June or in July that will will um, 
be part of the newscast. So that's one thing. And then what I when I, I started out viewing the virus on, on my own, when this first started, uh, we started hearing about it in February, what I wanted to know was what can I know about the virus as far as how is it spreading? Because at that point, they were telling us that it wasn't airborne and that it it's spread. They were even saying at that point not to wear masks. Now, it was clear they were telling us that for the most part, just because there weren't enough masks to go around. But they were saying, you know, no, not everyone needs to wear masks. And, you know, just if you're sick or you don't want to sneeze on people. So I wanted to know, well, what is really going on here? And so I tasked myself with tuning into the virus and seeing how it could spread. And I have a few simple visualization techniques um, just to kind of encapsulate it. Like I might even just visualize the word virus and say, I'm just going to like, I think of it like poking the word and saying what information can flow. And I, and when we were he hearing about people, so many people dying in Italy, I, I said, okay, I want to know, because again, how do you limit the information? Like maybe there's something different happening in Italy than in other places. So I specifically went into Italy and said, what is going on here? And I, and that's where I got immediate picture of people standing outside and I saw a representation of the virus. It was like filling up the space in between them. It was in the air and it was above their heads. It wasn't way up in the sky, but it was like a couple feet above their heads in between them. So at that point, and that picture was very clear. And I've been doing this long enough where I don't always know if my information is correct, but there's some information now that I would um, you know, bet, bet my limited savings on. And that was one of them. And so I knew at that point that this could be airborne. Um, it was limited because it wasn't way above their heads, but it and, it and that you could contract this outside in between people. And then sure enough, that that now is uh, common knowledge. But you know, it took a few weeks for that to come out. Well, because of that, I decided I was going to take the social distancing seriously, and my husband was. And since then, I have not personally even been to a store in now, what, close to two and a half months, three months. But I can do that because we live in Oregon in a rural area, and I can, I can walk for miles and not see a single person. So I'm fine doing that. Not other people wouldn't be, but I did that based on my information and not the information that was coming in. And then I and then I shared that immediately on my Facebook page. So that's another thing is you know not just I shared it for two reasons: one, to help others, that's most important, and two, to have documentation. So when the evidence, the scientific evidence, came out to confirm that, I would have a written record of it. Uh have you been able to glean any other uh, bits of information regarding COVID-19 from your remote viewing? For example, whether or not there will be a second wave this fall? No, oh, I, um, I am still working on that. Now, I would say a few weeks ago when I tuned in, and this is where it's hard when you your logical mind thinks something. My logical mind is saying, how on earth would this just go away? You know, how how is there not going to, how is this not going to linger for a long time? So that's what I think logically. Um, 
a few weeks ago on a few different occasions, whenever I would start to ask about, is this going to be here for a while? My visuals would just like fly off. And, and that, so this wasn't like really clear information, but I just kept getting the sense that it was just going to like fly away, uh, kind of disappear. And that didn't make any sense to me and still doesn't. So I'm not feeling confident about that. So I want, when I'm not confident about information, I want to go back and get more about it. And I just, I don't yet have a sense of that. I'm trying, I'm trying every week. What, what I, I, what I did even last night, I started to tune in. Um, there will be so many people coming out in June and people hanging out outside. And the only thing I got last night was I saw traffic jams, like in enormous long lines of cars with people just honking their horns. And I, and I heard Boston and perhaps New Mexico. It seems like something's going to be happening in the South. I also think that Colorado may be experiencing like a, um, a really, uh, you want to call it a hot spot or whatever. Um, but so there's, that's going to something be appearing on the news about these really long traffic jams. And I'm not sure, I, I again, I try to be really careful to not, if I don't get the reason for things to not make assumptions. It's my logical thinking that perhaps if we start to have people come out in areas you know, life isn't designed for everybody to do everything at once, right? So just like the whole problem was so many sick people going into the hospitals, that was a problem. Well, at least the new idea I had from um, my viewings last night was maybe life isn't designed for a whole bunch of people to be doing anything. So now that we've all been inside and now we're all going to go outside or even you know, now maybe what was there before can't, can't handle as much. And now there's maybe going to be new problems because so many people are now trying to do the things that they couldn't do over the last four months. So maybe somehow the traffic jams are related to that. I, I need to do more information or more looking, you know, so that's the thing is when we're using our psychic abilities, this may be true of any kind of information um, accruing, any kind of intelligence, at least. You know, sometimes it's clear, it's direct, it, it tells you, um, for example, even um, last night as I was trying to tune into the virus, my husband and I just built a, a garden, a raised garden bed, because we're really of the mind that we should be growing our own fruits and vegetables so we're not dependent on the system. So he um, put this... Um, uh, paper at the bottom of it it's the kind that you put on your driveway to put gravel on so that um, weeds don't go th grow through and it's permeable so the water is supposed to go through well last night when I was tuning into the virus my attention somehow wandered and I got this just a sudden flash of the bed that we made and it was completely uh, drowning so this I saw in June that the way that he had set it up like it should be permeable, but it's not, and it's going to accumulate, and the water's and the dirt's going to look like clay, and nothing's going to grow in it. So that flash in in the middle of I wasn't trying to get that, but that gave us information. So I said to him, you know, you, I think you better do something here before we actually start planting, because this is how I see things will be. Now I don't know if he's going to listen to me, so we'll. <laughs> 
half the time he's starting to listen to me after living together for 16 years he's he's starting to but you know like so many other people it's like well if this doesn't fit into my mindset or worldview I'm just gonna discard it you know that's the thing like people want information from psychics but they only tend to listen if it fits into what they're believing and then they discard it and then only after the fact they come back and they're like oh you know now I now I understand what you were talking about, but they didn't follow through because it didn't fit into their mindset originally. Uh, you're the director of the International School of Clairvoyance. Uh, tell me about the school. Yes, so I, I officially founded it about 15 years ago, and primarily for all these years, I have taught the classes online through teleseminar tel- or webinar formats, which sometimes people have been surprised, like, oh, how can you, how can you teach these things or learn these things over the phone or over the internet? And I'm like, well, we want people to close their eyes to not have distracting visual cues. So why wouldn't that be? We're we're learning how to access information at a distance. So why wouldn't we want to practice that and, you know, start from the very beginning, being at a distance even from each other to to do this. You know, past uh, parapsychology experiments, one of the biggest criticisms was that maybe the researcher was somehow um, giving uh, signs or, or clues to the participants. You know, maybe they were like touching the photographs and then when someone went to judge the photos against like a pool of photos and, and the transcripts, the, the, the judges could see like finger marks on the photos, or maybe, you know, they somehow gave information away. So when you start to bring people apart, whether in experiments or training, it works really, really well. And as we can see, uh, you know, I was way ahead of the game starting this 15 years ago, um, whereas now so much of education is having to move online because of the virus. So I was already very, very well set up and this is really my life. And that's why, you know, another reason it's it's easy for me to continue as is because nothing's really changed in my life except I've got more stressed out people, you know, coming and saying, oh, you know, I, I really, I knew that you were offering these classes and services, but didn't really see how it could work. But now I might as well give it a try because I don't have any other in, in person options. And so, uh, yeah, and we, we graduate, uh, I would say about maybe about 150 students a year from our programs. Now that's not a lot, but I'm the lead instructor and, and running most of it. And I'd say that's about the capacity, you know, I can personally handle at the moment. And then I've ha- I have a lot of helpers as as well, but I still like to be the primary instructor. And how do they sign up? DebraCats.com? Yes, yes, they can check out everything through my through my website, DebraCats.com. And Cats is K-A-T-Z, or Z up here in Canada, K-A-T-Z.com, Debra, D-E-B-R-A, Cats, K-A-T-Z.com. Dot com and and 
since you've been teaching for 15 years, is have you come across maybe the next Edgar Casey out there somewhere? Well, I do have, uh, I am so often blown away by so many of my students that that being said, there are definitely some that emerge um, and a lot of times um, pretty, pr- pretty quickly, um, you know, they stand out from the rest, but there are a few that really blow me away. And I would say they're from all over the world. Um, I have one in Saudi Arabia who's blowing me away at the moment, one in the UK, one in Mexico, and then certainly um, uh, some in the United States. And so, yes, I believe, um, you know, and, and again, it's kind of where, what are the opportunities do they have to display their abilities? Um, Edgar Casey was in the right time and place. And, you know, of course he stands out. I mean, he has, he, I still haven't seen people who do the work in the way that he did it. So he is unique in so many different ways because he would go to sleep and get the information. But, you know, if he hadn't had people around him to help him with that, he may never have even known he could do that. And I, I suspect that there are people who could do exactly what he did. But if there's nobody around even suggesting that they try and then that are documenting it, you know, the documentation of his work is what is just as astounding, if not more so than what he could do. And the same thing with Ingo Swan. Ingo's, what no one would ever have known about him if researchers hadn't agreed to work with him and if the earlier researchers hadn't been of the mindset that they were gonna be with him hour after hour and helping him develop and exploring what worked and what didn't. If he had just encountered only researchers who put him through a single test and said, no, you didn't do well, you obviously have no abilities, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. So it really is, this is a social act, and it really is about who is there to even recognize the talent in a person and bring it out. How do we get a hold of uh, You Are Psychic, The Art of Clairvoyant Reading and Healing, Extraordinary Psychic, Proven Techniques to Master Your Natural Abilities, and Freeing the Genie Within? Yes, you can find those on Amazon. Um, I have links on my website at DebraCats.com, but you can find those on Amazon. Deborah, great meeting you, and thanks for hanging out for the last 45, 50 minutes. Well, and thank you for your thoughtful questions. There's not a lot of hosts that really have an in-depth understanding of these topics, and you obviously do, so it's really a, a pleasure talking to you. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash to share a few details about an upcoming episode. I want to tell you about something I discovered recently called Carbon 60. I call it the Miracle Molecule. Now, you might remember an interview I did recently with a researcher, Chris Burris, who's looking to help people who experience pain, inflammation, loss of sleep, or lost mental acuity with his new C60 company, C60Evo.com. He has a product which is a consumable form of carbon 60 called ESS60 that's been proven in peer-reviewed published research to extend the lifespan of test rats by 90%. 
while allowing them to live tumor-free. That's pretty amazing. Those rats were given the C60Evo.com formula. The formula is a powerful antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C, and it's known to be a powerful anti-inflammatory. C60 is based on Nobel Prize winning chemistry. I highly recommend ESS60. The mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon every morning and we're both pain-free and sleeping better than ever. Discover the benefits of carbon 60. I call it the miracle molecule, ESS60 from C60Evo.com. Now, make sure to use the coupon code RS1SPEC. That's RS1SPEC. Buy today at C60Evo.com. That's C60Evo.com. And don't forget the code RS1SPEC. This product has not been assessed by the FDA and is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, from remote viewing to time travel, an author, broadcaster, explains how we have the ability to travel through time. And we don't need some fancy H.G. Wells-type contraption to do it. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.